Heavenly Father, you are God, and beside you there is no other. I pray that tonight as we look into Psalm 127, you would encourage our hearts. I pray that you would challenge our thinking. I pray that Jesus would be lifted high in our hearts and our affections and in our minds. I pray that, Father, you would give us a sense of your sovereign control of all things. Help us to trust you more, even as a result of tonight. It's all this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So our text tonight is Psalm 127, 1 and 2. The main text is going to be this verse. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. We're going to look at three things tonight. One, our story. Two, God's story. Three, our part in God's story. And this is all in the context of Eternal City Church. So as most of you know, we started out July of 2014 in my living room. And this July of 2016 was our two-year anniversary. We spent over a year in my living room, sometimes packed in there so tight, uh, some of you had to escape outside for breathing room, and sometimes there was four or five of us. And we were like, are we going to survive? <laughs> and as you know, we ventured into a building in Wilkinsburg, which was our targeted church planting borough. Just down the road here, 1675 Lakedon Road, we entered into a formal contract, rent to own, and we began to put down money on the mortgage. We had a fifth of the mortgage paid off within about a month. And most of you were there in the building working side by side along with me and we worked and we worked. And what we could not foresee was the roadblocks, the closed doors, the fixing and then the breaking, the fixing and then the breaking, the fixing and then the breaking. And we finally have some resolution tonight. We are pulling out of 1675 Lakedon Road, and that is no longer our building. Now, though that sounds like bad news, I can assure you that from the leadership's perspective, and from my perspective, and from my wife's perspective, we are, yes, saddened, but encouraged. We feel lighter as a leadership team rather than oppressed and heavy and down. And there's a reason for that. Because you have no idea the amount of money and time and energy and sleepless nights that that building has cost us, and in particular me. Waking up at 2 a.m., not able to go back to sleep, thinking about the mold that was growing all over the basement because we were fighting a losing battle with water. I can't tell you how many light, nights I laid sleepless thinking about 1675 Lathan Road. And so here's the story. This is our story, point one. We as a leadership team got to the point where we were stuck because Wilkinsburg stepped in and said, you shall not pass as if it was Gandalf laying down his 
scepter in front of the great dragon, okay? And Wilkinsburg said, you gotta stop everything. You can put carpet, and you can paint, and you can put up pictures, you shall not do any more, or there will be consequences. And so we stopped. Our next step was to get an architect, which as you know, architects are very expensive, and not easy to come by, ones that do good work and are trustworthy, and so we found one, named Rick Avon. He was uh, and is attending Orchard Hill Church. He's been to Haiti on missions trip. He's done multiple work for ministries and he stepped into our building situation. After meetings with him and I, we met with the building inspector who put the red light on our work. This happened this Thursday. As Rick, the architect and I, sat in this meeting with the code enforcement director, he walked through our building and said, no, no, gonna have to fix that, this shall not pass, this needs updated, and so to make a long story short, if you want details, you need to come talk to me afterward, but for the sake of the sermon, here's what happened. We would have needed to rip out everything we did, fix the back stairwell, which could have cost thousands, only to start back at where we started. And not only that, but there's more water in the basement than when we put new sump pumps in, dug a French drain, tarred the wall, you know, just worked a losing fight with water. And so we decided we, we cannot go anymore sinking money into a building that is not repairable. And so we pulled out. And so here's what's left for us to do. And 1675 is no longer in our lives. We have to rip out everything we did in order for the owner of the building to then resell the building and, or try to resell what's left of it. And so I need your help. I need you to come and do some demo with me. You can put some glasses on. You can put a hard hat on. You can swing a hammer and we can load a dumpster up. Okay? So I need your help. Now, how do we think about this in light of God's story so that we're not crushed because a lot of you raised funds, a lot of you gave thousands of dollars, a lot of you put hundreds of hours into this building. And so how in the world can this be good news? Well, Psalm 127, 1 to 2, let's read together. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Spurgeon calls this the builder's psalm. Many scholars think that this was written by either David to Solomon or Solomon himself because it fits nicely into the wisdom literature. And it would seem fitting also that David would be giving this instruction to his son who would build, quote unquote, God's house, the temple, which David was forbidden to build himself. For our purposes, we need to look at it in this context. There were many doors open. In fact, 1675 Lakeland Road was the only door open in Wilkinsburg at the time. We knocked on a lot of doors, and it was the only door that opened. Not only that, but then it was the only opportunity that we as a brand new church plant could get a building without a bank. We needed to find someone who would rent to own or give us a mortgage without a bank behind us. That door also opened up. 
We also needed other people with skills to come in and do the work that we, as a small church plant, were not skilled to do. Drywall and electric and plumbing and, and all of a sudden, all these doors opened. And as you well know, within months, we were into the mortgage, walls were up, new electricity was run, everything was going well. And then all of a sudden, the doors that were open began to shut, shut, shut. All the mortgage money had to get pulled to reinvest into all the breakage, all the brokenness. And so the question was, God, what are you doing? And so, so you can have a little personal insight into my thinking. My prayers went like this, God, are you, are you destroying the church? Are you trying to shut us down? What are you doing, God? Are, is this supposed to go forward? Is this the enemy coming at us? What in the world is this? Question marks, question marks, prayers. This psalm was one of the psalms that I held on to for over a year, saying, God, unless you build this house, now we know the churches are, is not where God dwells. The Old Testament temple was, yes, God's house in a sense, though God fills all of infinite eternity. He doesn't dwell in a house made by human hands as if he needed anything, for he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. In him we live and move and have our being. He is not dependent on a building for his existence. And so listen to this. The reason we should not be encouraged, or we should be encouraged, is that the building is not a church. We are the church. You and I are the church, not the building. We don't go to church. We are the church. We gather with the church. And so if a building goes, a building goes. The church still remains. And so for God to say, I'm closing this door, maybe we don't know why yet. But believe me, the leadership is praying and thinking in new ways than we've never thought and prayed before. More to come on that. But for now, we need to think about this in light of God's sovereignty. And unless God's hand is in whatever is going on in your life that you're trying to build, a business, a marriage, a family, a church building, a church ministry, a Bible study, a new job opportunity. This psalm is recognizing that though we labor and labor and labor without God, we labor in vain. So what I'm not saying is that God was not with us. He was with us. We don't know the strange providence of God and His control of all things. Here's Spurgeon. We are here taught that builders of houses and cities, systems and fortunes, empires and churches, all labor in vain without the Lord. But under the divine favor, they enjoy perfect rest. Every house is built by some man, but he that build all things is God, and unto God be praise. Psalm 135.6 says this, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth in the seas and all deeps. 
Isaiah 49, 9 to 10, I'm sorry, 46, 9 to 10, God says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. Spurgeon says, trowel and hammer, saw and plane are instruments of vanity unless the Lord, the master builder, builds. And so here's what we are concluding here. We're concluding, no, God is not against us. But for purposes we cannot yet see, God has closed that door in our church history. And we need to say, God, you are good, you are sovereign, you are in control. We don't understand it, but you are good, you are sovereign, and you are in control. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You guys with me? And so we should not as a church be like crippled. As I asked various leaders in the church, how do you, how do you feel? As it was asked by me earlier in the day by one of my coaches in the ministry, I said, I feel like I got hit with a bat, but I'm relieved. I'm relieved. Because guess what? Every time it would rain, every time it would come into my mind, 1675, Laketon Road is filling up with water right now, and mild anxiety would arrest me. We're supposed to enjoy the rain. It was Spurgeon who said before he came to Christ, he was terrified of the lightning. And then as soon as he came to Christ, he would enjoy the lightning. He would walk out into the lightning storms and glory and God's glory. And that's how we should be with the rain. Not anxious that you're building and your investment and your time and your work and your energy is molding and rotting and filling up. And so I'm, I'm for one, relieved. James. 4, 13 to 17, you know it well. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. And so we need to have that attitude that James exhorts his readers, us, now listeners, to have. If the Lord wills, we will do this or that. And if the Lord doesn't will, we won't do this or that. Whether it's acquire a church building build a core team into a thriving church, plant church planting churches, make disciple making disciples. If the Lord wills, we will do this or that. And listen, none of it by our own strength. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. This points to the fact that though we have all of the necessary military means, or you have your permit to carry, or you have a banging security system in your house, unless the Lord watches over you, or your building, or your children, it's all in vain. The point being, God is the one in control, despite all of your efforts. In fact, 
Proverbs 21.31 says, The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but victory belongs to the Lord. If there is victory, it is of the Lord. Now, listen to this closely. This psalm right here is not teaching passivity, inactivity, slothfulness, translate, laziness. It's not saying you should just lay down and take a nap and it's all going to be good because your efforts are all in vain anyway. The Bible knows nothing of that kind of nonsense. The Bible is is such a nuanced truth book that it says you must act, you must get counsel, you must choose wisely, you must make decisions, but you must always say and have in the back of your mind, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that or live. And then when we plan and plot and purpose and act and move and we do have success, who gets the glory? God alone, not us. And who gets the reward for working? We do. That's the glorious thing for us, is that, listen, even though our work might crumble, we get rewarded for the work. Do you believe that every dollar you fundraised, every dollar you gave, every hour you put in there, Listen, I was laid up in bed because I injured my back working down there. You don't think God's going to reward me for that, though we're not in there and now we're gone? No, there will be great reward beyond what you can imagine for all of the money and effort and time and hours and labor and skills that you put into that building. None of it was in vain as far as God's concerned. From our perspective, yeah, it's waste. No. Reward. Reward. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all what? Unto the glory of God. And so as you were down there painting and shipping walls and having a a mold mask on, bleaching, all unto the glory of God, deserving of reward. And you will receive a reward for all of your work. You did not labor in vain. God has another path for us as a church. And so, Spurgeon, again, the psalmist does not bid the builder to cease from laboring, nor suggest that the watchmen should neglect their duty, nor that men should show their trust in God by doing nothing. Classic Spurgeon, nay, nay, no. He supposes that they will do all they can do, and then he forbids their fixing their trust in what they have done and assures them that all creature effort will be in vain unless the Creator puts forth His power to render second causes effectual. Now, causality ventures into the realm of philosophy, so let me take a a one-minute philosophy break. Is that okay? Okay, one minute, I promise. First and secondary causality is this. God is the first cause of all things. In Him, we live and move and have our being. Listen, life, movement, and being itself exists within God. We could say it like this. God's not here with us. What? We are here with Him. Unless God is the first cause of all of the atoms, the protons, the electrons, the neutrons, all of their atomic energy spinning and rotating, life, movement, and being, there is no life, movement, and being. God is the first cause of all things. Even of those who would use his life, movement, and being to rebel against him, to write books against him, to sin against him, to spit in his face, to pull out his beard, to pierce his side, 
he empowered all of it as the first cause. And should God cease to exist? All things cease to exist because in him we live and move and have our being. Secondary causality is us. It's whatever happens in this physical world. And so without the first cause, there are no second causes. In other words, God is a God of means. God does not save unless you preach the gospel to someone or unless they read it in a book or a Bible or on the internet or on a tweet, etc. How can they hear unless someone is sent? The idea is God is a God of means. God can directly do whatever he wants. Genesis 6, Noah, I am sending a flood to wipe out the entire earth with the exception of you, your wife, your sons and their wives. And so God did that. But God doesn't often directly do. He often uses secondary causes. And so he uses the Bible and preaching and teaching for you to grow. He doesn't just look at you one morning and say, grow. Though we wish it was like that, like the matrix. If we could just plug in and, oh my gosh, I know jujitsu. No, you have to practice and practice and practice and practice. You want to get good at preaching? You need 10,000 hours. Brothers, you got a lot of preaching to go, as do I. No, God is a God of means. However, listen, that doesn't take away first causes. Without him, nothing happens. Secondary causes, he is still in control. He can stop any secondary cause at any moment he chooses to. Therefore, if God wants to put the brakes on 1675 Lakedon Road, he is very welcome to do so. If he wants to put a stoplight on 1675 Lakedon Road, he is welcome to do so, and he has done it. And God used the means, listen to me now, of Wilkinsburg's authority stepping in and saying, stop. And then he used us being forced legally into getting an architect and that architect scanning our building and saying, this is horrible, this is bad, you don't understand what this is. And then a meeting with the code inspector saying, this all got to be changed and us saying, we can't do that. Therefore, we need to pull out. Secondary causes, God the primary cause. So it was God who stopped us. Do I have, a re do I have the why answer? I don't. Maybe we'll know in five years. Maybe we'll know in two years. All I know is, listen, we as a leadership team are more encouraged, more resolved, and more resolute to press forward than ever before. That's what I know. We're more dedicated now that this has happened than the less. We are more seeking God for his plan and will now than before. And I'm calling you to the same. I'm asking you now to step up and to pray and to say, God, where are we going? What do you have for us? What can I do? Not what can they do. So we from the beginning have said this, we're not gonna be a church that the minister ministers to the many. We said from day one, we're gonna be a church where the ministers equip the many for ministry. Who remembers that? 
We're not going to be a church where there's a few ministers that minister to the many. We're going to be a church that the ministers, though they be few, equip the many for ministry. Are you ready for that? I am. This psalm says that unless the watchman stays awake, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Here's Calvin. It is not the will of the Lord that we should be like blocks of wood or that we should keep our arms folded without doing anything, but that we should apply to use the talents and advantages which he has conferred upon us. God hasn't called you to be a block of wood and sit there until a builder picks it up and uses it. He has called you to use your gifts and talents and abilities that are all God-given to minister to his body, specifically if this is your church, this church body. Verse 2, Psalm 127. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest. How many of you, this is your life? Man, I get up early and I work and I work and I work and then I go late to rest. And what do I get for that? I eat the bread of anxious toil. I'm just toil, toiling and anxiously working constantly, yet I feel like I'm getting nowhere. Does any of your lives feel like a treadmill? Do you feel like you're on the roundup at Kennywood? I know you gotta be from Pittsburgh to understand that one. The Enterprise, remember that old ride? Just around and around till you throw up. Is that your life? It is in, so, so here's what Solomon or David is saying to us as a help. Listen, it's vain that you get up early and toil anxiously and then go to bed late and then repeat. It's in vain. Now this eating the bread of anxious toil comes from Genesis 3. It's part of the curse on Adam. Listen, Genesis 3, 17 to 19, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Now, listen closely. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Eating the bread of anxious toil. So this is laboring under the curse. This is laboring under the curse. Did you know that God has a different way for you? He offers a different road than you're currently on. He's inviting you to step off of the treadmill. That's what he's saying. It's in vain that you're getting up early every day and going to bed late and working and working and working and working and not getting anywhere. Or maybe you are getting somewhere. Maybe your bank account is growing and your investment portfolio is growing and your accomplishments are gaining speed. But listen, are you any happier? 
Do you feel satisfied? Are you like, finally? No, you're not, because it can't work. It never will. Those who love money never have enough. Get a million, you'll want two. Get two, you'll want three. Get five, you'll want ten. You'll never feel wealthy. As soon as you get the 2016 Lamborghini, the 2017 comes out. You know it's true. Spurgeon again. If you're not familiar with Spurgeon, you're going to be after this. <laughs> we are bound to be diligent. For this the Lord blesses. So listen to me. Diligence the Lord blesses. We ought not be anxious, for this dishonors the Lord and can never secure his favor. So there's the difference. There's anxious toil, and then there's working while resting. And you're like, what do you, what do you mean? Isn't that a contradiction? No, it's a paradox. It's not a contradiction. There is such a thing as restful work. Let me explain. Spurgeon again. God is sure to give the best thing to his beloved. And we here see that he gives them sleep. That is a, a laying aside of care. A forgetfulness of need. A quiet leaving of matters with God. This kind of sleep is better than riches and honor. This kind of sleep is better than riches and honor. And so how many of you know this story? My car was having troubles recently. And if you're on a tight budget, you know what that's like. You're like, oh my gosh. How are we going to get to work? How are we going to get to there? How are we going to do this? What are we going to do? And so you find the means to fix the car. And even though the car's fixed, the anxiety doesn't leave you. Because you're like, what if it breaks? We're in big trouble. And these kind of conversations with yourself, yes, go on. And all of a sudden, your heart starts racing. And your eyes start getting bigger. And you start sweating sometimes. And what you've done is you've taken your trust off of the Lord and you've put it onto Random chance, circumstances, situation, sight. Listen, we live by faith, not by sight. It's often not faith that messes us up. It's what we see that messes us up. It's not the things we don't see that cause us anxiety. It's the things we do see. It's the sight that messes us up. Is that right? Yeah. And so how much better to say, God, this is your car. My life is an illusion. My life is your life. The money in my account and my virtual wallet is your money. It's your virtual wallet. James just told us, what is your life? If the Lord wills, you'll live and do this or that. And so that simple acknowledgement of it's yours, not mine, is a massive anxiety reliever a massive stress reliever. If my daughter and her future is God's responsibility and not ultimately mine, that's a lot of weight off my back. Does that excuse me 
to be lazy and slothful and not obey Deuteronomy 6? No. That's a command. And so we teach when we get up and we teach when we drive in the car and we teach while we're making smoothies and we teach when there's a bee sting and all the time we are discipling because that's what Deuteronomy 6 tells us to do. But I don't ultimately put that burden of my daughter being born again and her walking in the ways of God on me because it's not on me. And if you have kids, ultimately it's not on you. It's on God. And so if you're anxious when you think about those things, now you know why. Because it's misplaced trust. You're trusting in your ability. You're trusting in your power. You're trusting in your efforts. And unless the Lord builds the house, the builders build in vain. And so we give God the ultimate responsibility. Spurgeon, one more time, I promise this is it. How much happier would we be if we would trust the Lord's house to the Lord of the house. Now, now, that goes for the church building. That goes for the house of your life. That goes for your physical house that you're paying a mortgage on. That goes to everything that you possess, could be called your household, your net worth, all of it, the house. Let me read it again. Listen. How much happier we would be if we would but trust the Lord's house to the Lord of the house. And if you just can't let go of it, maybe it's more of a small g God to you than it is a gift. Did you ever think of that? Maybe you worship it and so you cannot but give it to God because it's a false God that you cannot pry your fingers from. So it's small g God, not gift from God. What is far more important, this is Spurgeon again, how much better would our building and watching be done if we would but confide in the Lord who builds and keeps his own church? And so let me say this about the church, and we're almost done. The Lord is the builder of his church. And listen, it's right for us to say eternal city is our church. So I get what that means. But listen, Eternal City is God's church. We accumulatively are the bride of Christ. We are the called out ones. It's God's church, not ours. And God said through Jesus in Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so... Who do we trust the ministry to ultimately? The one who said, I will build my church. Quick side note, gates were defense in the ancient days when this was written. You don't put up gates for offense. Gates are to keep people out you don't want in. And so the picture is the church storming the gates of hell and Jesus is saying, though all hell be against you, me behind you, they're not going to succeed. You're going to storm the gates of hell and you will prosper if the Lord be behind you. And so let's entrust the building of the church to the Lord of the church. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus said this. Now, now let's, let's finish with this. How can we get away from this early rising, late 
to bed, eating anxious toil, and rather we want this last verse, he gives to his beloved sleep. And remember, we discuss what sleep is. It's a restful working. It's a anxiety-free moving through your days. It's an entrusting all things to the Lord, saying ultimately you are in control and not me. How do we get that? Well, Jesus tells us, listen, in Matthew eleven twenty-eight, 28, he says this, and I imagine with his arms out, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, rest for your souls. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest, rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so notice there is a yoke and there is a burden. Uh, that's ancient farming language. When you yoke up oxen or donkeys, you, you, you put them on a plow or a cart and they're yoked with straps. And Jesus is saying, yes, there is a burden. Yes, there is a yoke, but it's light. I do have work for you to do. You will be active, but listen, your soul will be at rest. I'm not calling you to anxious toil and eating the bread of anxious toil. In other words, eating the benefits of your getting up early, late to bed, anxiously working, maybe going to a movie every now and then, but yet being so anxious at the movie that you can't help but look at your texts or hold on in the middle of a conversation, I gotta take this call. Are you running the world or is God running the world? Better question, are you running your world or is God running your world? And if your life is more characterized by anxiety and stress and sleeplessness, I think you know who's running your world. Because Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, how can we ultimately get this rest of soul? Realizing that Jesus, this is how, realizing that Jesus received the ultimate soul unrest. That's how. In Matthew 26, 36 to 45, Jesus went with them, his disciples, to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that would be James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Notice that in the text. Right then he began to be sorrowful and troubled, but not up to that point. So Jesus was anxiety-free up until the Garden of Gethsemane, until he took Peter, James, and John with him. All of a sudden, the dark clouds begin to loom. Overcast skies for Jesus began to happen. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. That could be pray. Remain here and pray with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, listen, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for a second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, 
your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed a third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the the disciples and said, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Now listen, he said, unless I drink it, the hour has come. What was he talking about? He was talking about the ultimate soul unrest, what we would call hell. Hell is unrest of soul multiplying forever. The absence of God's mercy, grace, love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. And Jesus was experiencing ultimate cosmic soul unrest in these moments. And he did not want to drink it. But he said, not what I will, but what you will. And so, Jesus, in that hour, the hour has come, he drank the cup of God's wrath, and he didn't leave one drop left. Now listen to me, that is good news for you and I. Because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Not a drop. Every last drop Jesus drank for you, and for you, and for me, if we would but receive that ultimate soul unrest so that your soul can rest. So what are you going to do with that? Are you going to receive the rest that Jesus offers? Forgiveness of your sins? No condemnation? My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Get off the treadmill, he's saying. Come to me, all you who are burdened and heavy laden, and I'll give you the rest that you've been searching all other paths for. Peter tells us, as one of those ones in the garden with Jesus, as you come to him, the living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, this is us, like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So we, listen, are the church. We are the living stones like a house that God is building. Jesus being the chief cornerstone. Listen, our labor is not in vain when we're building with the capital A architect. So are you building with the capital A architect or are you the architect of your life? Paul exhorts us, and this is it. My beloved brothers, be steadfast. This is us now as a church. He's saying to Eternal City, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is what? Not in vain. In vain, your work in the Lord, not in vain. You don't want to find yourself in this verse. You want to find yourself in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, knowing that every day, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, you do it all to the glory of God, and your labor is not in vain. And so listen, when I'm mistreated by my boss, do you know what I say to myself? 
And yes, I talk to myself more than you probably talk to yourself, and it's okay. I say, my boss has a boss, and he's the one who will ultimately pay my paycheck. And so though I may not be appreciated by my boss, my capital B boss appreciates everything I do for him. And that not only motivates me to go to work and work hard when everyone else is slacking off, but that also motivates me to be an example of what a Christian looks like working for Jesus. We look not to the things which are seen, but to the things which are unseen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Move out of the realm of non-existent fairy tales and reality, everything physical I can see, touch, taste, hear, science can prove. Mystical, fantasy, scientific reality. No, seen, unseen. Those are the categories we think in. And so though you may not see the great calculator that Jesus has and the books that are being recorded by your every motivation and action, that doesn't mean they're not there. It just means you can't see them. And as Wayne Grudem helpfully reminds us, listen, maybe God is way closer than you imagine him to be. We imagine him past the galaxies out there. Where's heaven? Well, it's beyond the galaxies. Well, maybe not. Because in Acts chapter 7, when Stephen was about to die as the first Christian martyr, he looks up and can see Jesus close enough that he recognizes it's Jesus. And he says, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So Wayne Grudem posits this. Listen, could it be that maybe your eyes are too weak to see the full color range of all reality? And maybe there are angels in this room and demons in this room right now, and just your eyes are too weak to see them, but maybe they are scientifically, provably here, and you can't see them. Maybe God is right there beyond the clouds, and heaven is right beyond your eyesight, and just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not right there. Seen and unseen. Not mystery, fairy tale, fable, scientific, provable. No. Seen and unseen. And listen, Paul tells us the things that are unseen, those are eternal. Everything else you see with your eyes, temporary. The chair you're sitting in, the clothes you're wearing, the body your soul is living in and connected to, all temporary. We live for the now, for the next. You don't only live once. You live once for the next. And the next will be a dot that goes on forever and never stops. The now has a dot and a dot. And not to be morbid, but it's going to be on your tombstone. And so listen, do not be discouraged because every labor that you commit to the Lord is not in vain. And just because you can't see the reward doesn't mean it's not in heaven waiting for you. And maybe heaven's not so far that it's closer than you think. Maybe. 
Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, that by the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And so that's what we are to do. We are to live our lives in view of God's gracious gift of Jesus in our place. We are to live as living sacrifices, every day living for Jesus, not anxious, not worrisome, not in vain, easy, light, soul rest, rewarded. That's how we're to be living as Christians. And that's how we're to view where Eternal City Church is headed. We are going to live for God. We are going to entrust the weeks, the months, the years ahead to Him. And we're going to pray that He guides us by His Holy Spirit. 